right, let me, um, let me pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the privilege we have of gathering this morning to talk about eternal things. Lord, what a, what a privilege that you have revealed your will and expectations so clearly to us in Scripture, and you have also revealed to us what you're like, both in Scripture and in nature. Uh, this morning in Sunday school, as we, as we think about your revelation to us from nature, we pray that we would marvel at your power, your wisdom, your creativity, your might. Father, we do pray that as we think about um, evolution once again, that you would equip us to, to talk to a lost and dying world about, about uh, uh, evidence uh, for your existence in creation. And Father, as we, as we um, anticipate singing this morning and, and listening to preaching and, and praying and sacraments and fellowship, we pray, Lord, that uh, our hearts would be excited uh, to be with your people and to hear from you uh, in the scriptures. Uh, fill us with your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Let's, um, let's talk about uh, where we've been briefly. So uh, this, this morning uh, is, is my last lecture because next week we're going to have a panel discussion. Um, we have spent uh, many, many weeks talking about um, uh, apologetics. We have been looking at uh, evidence for God's existence. Uh, we, we covered uh, six arguments arguing for Christian theism. Uh, and now we are talking about the common objections to Christianity. Uh, we talked about the problem of evil, and we're, now we're talking about um, evolution. And unfortunately, we're not going to get to a lot of things I wanted to get to uh, in this series uh, for a variety of reasons. But I had about maybe five to seven more topics I wanted to cover um, that I won't get to. But God is sovereign. Maybe I'll get to him at some point in the future. Um, but but I, I do think that the problem of evil and the whole issue of science uh, those are often the two most common objections to, to Christianity. And as I've argued, I, I think science actually points us towards Christianity, not away from it. Now, the last uh, two weeks, we have been talking about evolution. Um, and the first week, we, we defined things. And then I spent most of our time um, talking about chemical evolution, uh, which is what? What is chemical evolution? Someone tell us. It's different than biological evolution. What is chemical evolution? Okay. Chemical evolution deals with the origin of life. Um, how did non-living things in the swamp gas uh, billions of years ago produce living things? That's the chemical evolution question. And I argued that chemical evolution has all kinds of problems uh, which are recognized uh, by both Christians and a lot of scientists, and I read several quotes from you from several scientists who are not Christians who admit that chemical evolution is incredibly problematic. Then we moved into biological evolution, uh, and so far we have provided uh, three critiques of biological evolution. Uh, first, we talked about what? You remember the first critique of biological evolution? Let's see if I remember. What was it? Remember? No, no one remembers. What, 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 what have we talked about so far? I've totally failed you guys as a teacher. What, what critiques have we provided so far? You guys have all been here for a couple of weeks, right? Do I have to call on someone? Everyone's avoiding eye contact right now. Okay, we discussed that last week, very good. Okay, so, but the, the very first critique I brought was, think about dinosaurs, fossils. Okay, so I, I, thank you, Pat. One person was listening two weeks ago. Thank you. I, I'm not a failure as a teacher anymore. Thank you, Pat. You're boosting my self-esteem right now. Okay, so we, we talked about how, um, the fossil record wreaks havoc on evolutionary theory. We talked about how the missing links are still missing, and we talked about the Cambrian explosion. And the Cambrian explosion 
uh, is really good evidence that evolution did not happen. Um, and then uh, next, what did we talk about? What was the second critique I brought? Anyone remember? Um, that was part of it. That was part of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just I'll just read these to you guys. So so problem problem one was that, that chemical evolution um, cannot uh, produce life. Problem two, the fossil record does not support evolution. Um, problem three, uh, we, we talked about how um, it's never ever been proven that microevolution leads to macroevolution. And there we talked about the different icons of evolution, um, uh, Darwin's finches, uh, Hackle's embryo drawings, uh, the mutated flute flies, the peppered moths, and none of those things have ever proven that microevolution leads to macroevolution. Then we talked about, well, if that's the case, then what about genetic mutations? And there we, we made the point uh, that the vast majority, like literally, uh, when I say vast, I mean like 99.9% .9 of all mutations are harmful and not helpful. Okay, and that leads us to um, this morning. So this morning, uh, we're going to deal with uh, problem four. Um, let me get there in my notes. Problem four. Uh, there is an overwhelming amount of evidence for intelligent design. So now we're moving more into a positive case uh, for intelligent design or creation. Now, we've already talked about arguments from design. We talked about the teleological argument for God's existence, and that argument goes like this. Every design has a designer. The universe has a highly complex design, therefore the universe has a designer. So that is the, the teleological argument for God's existence, which, and we, we covered that in great detail many, many weeks ago. Um, but the basic idea here uh, is that if we can, can detect design in something, then it means that there is a designer involved. And intelligent design teaches that an intelligent agent is the best explanation um, of the existence of specified complexity in nature. And we all, we all know this intuitively. We can all detect design very intuitively. And as I mentioned, I think it was last week, if you are out in the jungle all by yourself without a map or a compass and you're walking down a path and you see spelled in the path with bananas, caution, um, do not keep walking, quicksand ahead. Would you think, oh, those letters arranged like that are the result of wind and rain and monkeys throwing bananas on the ground. Would you think that? Why not? It's intelligible, okay? <laughs> Very good, Isaac. <laughs> what were you going to say, Brian? Right. Yeah, yeah. Another great example of this is if you're, if if you were if you were driving through, I think it's South Dakota. I think it's South Dakota, and you saw up on these cliffs the heads of four presidents. This is South Dakota, Mount Rushmore. Okay, okay, South Dakota. Um, I've driven by it like five times. So I've never actually stopped there because it's like three hours off the main highway. I know, shame on me. But if you, if you were driving by that and you saw those four heads, what would you think? Oh, that must be the result of wind, rain, erosion, and sun. Of course not. You would see uh, marks of design, specified complexity. And there are many aspects of nature that carry these marks of design. Uh, I'm going to look at a couple. So, and we've already covered this one, I'll, I'll cover it briefly. Um, first is the information stored in DNA displays the marks of design. Um, chance cannot create uh, incredibly complex computer software. So if, if it takes intelligence to write 
10 words, 15 words, with bananas, uh, and, and the bananas say, uh, you know, proceed with caution, quick stand ahead. How much more intelligence is required in DNA? Which, as I've said many times before, is the equivalent of thousands and thousands and thousands of books. And in all those books are letters arranged very carefully to spell words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters. And DNA, the four letters ATCG, are arranged very, very carefully. And there is massive, massive amounts of information in DNA. Bill Gates says this, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. One author writes this, we know of no structures more complex than living cells. The complexity of major cities and of supercomputers pales in comparison to that of cellular life. The cell's origin, complexity, and information content cannot be explained by any known process, including natural selection. That is by, it's, it's a great little book. Uh, two guys, Keith Lee and Roker, they wrote a book called 40 Questions in our bookstore, 40 Questions about, I think, evolution and intelligent design. It's probably one of the best books to read on this topic. If you want a, a really good overview of all these issues, age of the earth, science, faith, evolution, intelligent design, uh, it's, a, it's a great book. One guy uh, is old earth, one guy is young earth. Uh, two authors, Keith Lee and Roker, Roker. Uh, it's a great book. Um, yeah, you bet. Um, let's, let's talk next. Uh, I'm going I'm to skip one of these points because I, I was, I was going to say this, that um, the fine-tuning in the universe is also evidence of intelligent design, but that is not dealing with living things. So evolution, as I've said many times before, evolution only has to do with uh, biological things, living things. So the fine-tuning of, of the universe, uh, that, that is not in the realm of evolution because that's not dealing with a living system. Although I will say this, that the fine-tuning of the universe, um, all those conditions, and there are over 200 as far as we know right now, all those conditions prove that there is some super intelligent intellect who is monkeying with all those conditions, which proves there's a designer out there. But again, that's dealing not with living things, but with non-living things. So technically, that is not a question um, in the context of, of the evolution debate. Does that make sense? Evolution is with living things, okay? Really important to make that distinction. Um, and the reason why I say that is because um, whenever I talk about Big Bang cosmology, people freak out and say, that's evolution. I say, no, it's not. Category mistake. Okay? Evolution deals with living things. Um, and Big Bang cosmology, uh, the, the, the creation of the universe is not a living thing. Uh, we're talking about rocks and asteroids and galaxies. Those are not living things. Um, let, let me keep going here. Again, we're, we're, we're looking at um, evidence of design in living things. Um, irreducible complexity uh, displays the marks of design. Now, this next quote by Darwin uh, is a really important quote. Um, Darwin said this, <clears throat> if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So Michael Behe read that probably three decades ago and said, well, I can prove um, that there are many systems in biology that don't pass this test. So Darwin, Darwin had a very, very simple understanding of the cell. Uh, when he was alive, uh, he referred to the cell as, a, as a, a something made of protoplasm, and protoplasm was basically just like a jelly. He, he had no clue how incredibly, insanely complex the human cell is. Um, the invention of the electron microscope in the mid-20th century, together with several other technological advances, um, have caused us to make massive strides forward in understanding just how complex the human cell is. Uh, there's been an explosion of new research into the cells 
um, that has shown that the cell is far more complex than anyone had ever fathomed or imagined. Um, so Michael Behe defines irreducible, irreducible complexity to mean this. He says this, uh, a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, wherein the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. An irreducibly complex system cannot be produced directly, and this is the key, key phrasing here, by slight successive modifications, we'll come back to that phrase again and again, by slight successive modifications of a precursor system. Because any precursor in the irreducibly complex system that is missing a part is by definition non-functional. So what is he saying? Michael Behe is saying this, that a system is irreducibly complex because the whole system ceases to function if you take away just one part from that system. And the classic illustration Behe gives here, anyone know? The mousetrap, okay. So there's the mousetrap right there. Uh, a mousetrap has five parts. You've got the board, uh, you've got the spring, you've got the hook, you've got um, the thing that actually crushes the mouse, uh, and then you have the thing that holds the cheese. Now, if any one of those five parts is missing, is the mousetrap going to work? No. Why not? It's irreducibly complex. What does that mean, Dale? Remove any one part and it won't build up on Okay. So how, how does that disprove evolution? There are, how does evolution function? There are systems that are irreducibly complex, um, such as evolution, the quote-unquote evolution of the eye. Okay. Um, there, there are a number of elements that, that need to be in place for, for vision to take place. Okay. Yeah, so the way evolution works, supposedly, is over billions and billions of years, you have these very, very slight modifications uh, in, a, in a, a, a part or in a living creature, and these very slight modifications over billions and billions of years eventually uh, lead to new species. Um, so what Behe has done is he said, when you look at biological systems, and the one that he often refers to as the flagellum motor, which is this, this incredibly intricate little machine inside of cells. There's a picture of it. Um, the, the flagellum motor has 40 working parts, and all these parts have to be in existence at the same time or simultaneously, or this system, this motor, does not work. But the problem with evolution is that's not how evolution works. Evolution works where you have these slight modifications of one part over time. So if, in this particular example that Behe gives, if one of those particular parts is still evolving, then this whole thing does not work. And if it does not work, then what happens to it, evolutionary speaking? Evolutionary speaking. It ceases to exist. It no longer provides a functional advantage. And so it's useless and it's thrown on the scrap heap of evolution. Um, so, so Behe has argued uh, very effectively in his book, Darwin's Black Box, uh, that there are not just one, but thousands of irreducibly complex systems in biology. And again, if you don't have all the parts in place simultaneously, that system does not work, and it's useless, and it will not keep advancing. And again, the way evolution works is all four of those parts evolve on their own timetable slowly over time. And if one part is missing, then that system uh, will be useless and will not work. Any questions about that before I move on? I know it's a little, it's a complex concept, but it, it, it has been an incredibly effective critique of evolution in the last couple of decades. Any questions or comments about Behe's irreducible complexity? It's a really powerful idea. Yes. Russ. Yes. And, and again, the way evolutionary theory works is those 40 parts all evolve on their own timetable slowly over time. And if that's the case, then it, it would cease to exist and it would, it, it would be thrown again to the scrap heap of evolution.
it, it wouldn't have a functional advantage. Um, okay, let's move on. I'm going to give one more example um, of uh, design in biology, and this was alluded to earlier. This is, this is a, an incredible example, and that is simply this. Uh, the human eye is an incredibly intricate and complex biological system. Um, it contains the marks of design. William Paley lived in the 1700s, and he believed that the eye was God's masterpiece in creation. Probably right. Um, to help his friends understand God's design, he compared the human eye uh, to a human telescope, and he made these points. The eye was made for vision. A telescope was also made for assisting vision. Um, each eye uses a sophisticated lens to achieve its function and purpose. Um, I'm sorry, each, each item, the eye and the telescope, both use a sophisticated lens to achieve its function and purpose. Uh, both reflect and manipulate light. Uh, both are able to bring an object into proper focus. Uh, the muscles surrounding the soft lens of the eye move to bring objects into focus, while a telescope uses dials to move the lens. And here's a, here's a picture. This does not do it justice at all, but you can see lots of different parts uh, in the eye. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Um, so again, speaking of William Paley, he said, with, with, with the complexity of the human eye in mind, he asked his friends if it would be reasonable to believe that the telescope was created by a craftsman while the eye was not. Of course, the answer is that's totally unreasonable. Um, one scholar writes this, uh, the tiny retina of the eye has 130 million receptor cells, and each cell is packed full of incredible amounts of information. So the tiny retina cell, or the tiny retina of the eye has 130 million receptor cells, 124 million of which are rod-shaped and enable us to differentiate between light and darkness. Six million of these receptors, cells, are cone-shaped and can identify up to eight million variations of color. That's mind-boggling. Your eye can detect eight million variations of color. Incredible. And this all evolved from the swamp gas by chance? Are you kidding me? And then he, he, this quote ends by saying, could this really occur by a random purposeless process? Um, author John Blanchard makes a significant point. He says this, a partial eye, this is going back to irreducible complexity, a partial eye is useless. 5% of an eye would not give 5% vision. It would give none. What is more, even if all the physical components of an eye were in place, they would achieve nothing unless they were precisely wired to an amazing complex of nerve cells in the brain. Small wonder that someone has suggested examination of the eye is a cure for atheism. So the complexity of the eye causes all kinds of problems for evolutionists. Because again, if evolution is true, then the eye would have to develop slowly over billions of years through slight successive modifications. And if that's true, you've got, you have problems because the eye is irreducibly complex. You have all these parts functioning together, thousands of parts, and if just a couple of parts are missing, the eye no longer works or functions and you're blind. Uh, Darwin clearly recognized the, that um, the eye uh, was incredibly complex, uh, and he wrote bluntly in a letter, uh, the eye to this day gives me a cold shudder. Rightfully so. Dr. Ming Wong uh, is a world-renowned eye surgeon who earned his MD from Harvard and his PhD in laser physics from MIT. But who hasn't, really, right? How hard would that be? Uh, this guy's very, very smart. He grew up an atheist, and he writes this. The more I learned about science, the more, not less, evidence that I saw for God's creation and design. For example, as I was becoming an ophthalmologist and learning about the inner workings of the eye, uh, the amazing and logical arrangement of photoreceptors, ganglion cells, and neurons, I realized that there is absolutely no way 
that an intricate structure such as the human eye could ever evolve from a random compilation of cells. The very complexity of a human eye is, in fact, the most powerful evidence of the existence of God. He also wrote, as a medical doctor and a scientist, I can firmly attest to the fact that it is impossible for natural selection to form the intricacies of the eye. So, all that to say is there is incredible evidence uh, of design in nature, and I am just scratching the surface this morning. Um, we, we could list example after example after example of irreducible complexity at the cellular level, and also the incredible marks of design uh, in biological systems, whether it's the human eye, or the human brain, uh, or the paws of a cheetah, uh, or the jaws of an alligator. There's just all kinds of incredible complexity out there. So that's the fourth problem, is that uh, there is evidence of design uh, in creation. Fifth problem, um, and we've, we've, we've already touched on this a little bit, but I'll just mention it again briefly. Problem five, um, evolution cannot account for morality or rational thought. And I'll never forget, many years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, I was watching with my family the incredible documentary, um, Planet Earth. I'm sure many of you have watched it. How many of you have watched Planet Earth? Okay, uh, the narrator, David Attenborough, is not a Christian. He is, as you probably all know, he is a passionate proponent of evolution. And there's just this incredible scene in episode four or five uh, where they're, they're, they're looking at um, either gorillas or apes. I forget which one it was. Let's say it's gorillas. And you have these two rival um, camps of gorillas in the jungles. And one of these groups of gorillas, they're, they're bigger, it's a larger group, um, and they want the land of the other gorillas. And so they, they literally, they create this like gorilla war party, and they swing across the jungle, and they go and they kill the other gorillas, and then they begin to cannibalize the other, the other gorillas. Once they kill them, they start eating the other gorillas when they're dead. And David Attenborough, the narrator, does not make one single moral judgment. He does not say, how awful these gorillas are murdering each other and they're cannibalizing each other. But if Attenborough's going to be consistent, aren't we coming from the same biological tree, evolutionary tree? If we've all just evolved from the swamp gas, alligators, humans, gorillas, elephants, then why is it wrong for me to murder Dale and he eat his body, which I'm not gonna do, Dale. Why is that wrong? But it's not wrong for a gorilla to do the same thing. Help me understand, David Attenborough, what is the difference? If we've all just evolved from the swamp gas, then there's no basis at all for any kind of objective morality or truth. But for some reason, Attenborough doesn't see any problem there. <laughs> uh, I have five boys. Um, imagine that my, my boys find an anthill in the field not too far from our house, and they think, wouldn't it be fun to put gasoline on this anthill and light it on fire? Would you think that my boys are sick and twisted Probably not, and what boy wouldn't want to do that, right? But, but again, if we've all just evolved from the swamp gas, how are ants different than human beings? What's the difference? There is no difference. We all come from the same family tree, so uh, if that doesn't stick in us, then why is it wrong for my boys to kill cats or baby humans? What's the difference? Now, fortunately, uh, most evolutionists don't live this way, which means that they're living inconsistently with their worldview, which means their worldview is broken, doesn't work. But if survival of the fittest is true, why in the world should we care if the frail, elderly, or mentally handicapped survive? We shouldn't. Why is racism wrong? Why is rape wrong? Um, why is genocide wrong? If, we all, if we've all just evolved from the swamp gas. 
there's zero basis for objective morality if that's the case. And um, to be clear, uh, William Provane, who is a Darwinian professor of biology from Cornell University, he understands this. And he says this, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology teaches us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directing forces of any kind, no life after death. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Um, there's a, there is a, an ethicist at Princeton which is so ironic because Princeton was founded by the American Puritans to train Presbyterian ministers. There's an eth ethicist there named Peter Singer. Have you heard that name, Peter Singer? Who He actually understands this, and he promotes this idea. So he says things like, um, he, he argues philosophically that it's okay uh, for a mother to kill her newborn child. If she wants to survive, that's okay, he argues. And he's just being consistent with his worldview. Again, is it wrong for a gorilla to kill her infant? Is that gorilla going to go to jail? No. <laughs> the answer is no. Okay. Well, then again, why is it wrong uh, if a mom needs to survive to kill her two-month-old child. Why is that wrong? Well, we would say that's totally wrong because that child is made in God's image, and that's murder. But again, if we're going to be consistent with the evolutionary worldview, like Peter Singer is, there's no basis for saying that that is wrong. Now, Darwinists often respond by arguing that morality has evolved to help us survive. But if evolution is true, why should anyone care if anyone survives? Evolution is not a thing. Uh, evolution is randomness. Natural selection is randomness. It's chance. Why in the world does chance or randomness care if anyone survives? It doesn't. It can't. It's not a thing. Furthermore, if evolution is true, there's no philosophical basis at all for rational thought. Um, summarizing Cornelius Plantiga. By the way, Cornelius Plantiga is one of the world's leading philosophers uh, at Notre Dame. He's a Protestant, he's a Christian, and he's done really, really good work in the last couple of decades in philosophy. But summarizing Plantinga's um, thoughts on this, one author writes this, if beliefs are simply states of the brain and natural selection chooses such states according to their contribution to survival rather than any relationship to truth, then there is no reason to trust our beliefs as actually adhering to something that is true. Then what does this say about the, about the evolutionist belief in Darwinism? Confidence in the truthfulness of Darwinism is completely undermined. Then it's imaginary, I'm sorry, then it's imagery of Darwinism as a universal acid has returned with a vengeance. The acid has consumed itself. Okay, what is that quote saying? If evolution is true, then I can't trust anyone's thoughts because evolution provides no basis whatsoever for any rational thought. Everything is randomness. The thoughts in your brain are just the basically chemical reactions that are spontaneously erupting all the time. And if that's true, there is no basis at all for rational thought. This means that I can't trust the thoughts of a Darwinist when he or she is arguing for evolution's truthfulness. Okay, I got to move on a little faster now. Um, problem six. We're on the sixth problem. The fifth problem was simply that, that evolution provides no basis at all uh, for morality or rational thought. Therefore, uh, it must not be true because it does not work. No one lives, fortunately, like evolution is true. Although the Nazis did in the 30s in Europe, and uh, uh, a lot of evolutionists don't like to admit this, uh, but guys like um, Hitler uh, and Lenin were very influenced by Darwinism. Uh, and, and actually, in, in this nation, eugenics was a big deal in the 20s and 30s. What's eugenics? Anyone know what eugenics is? Killing off the weak. So it was very popular uh, in academic circles in America, places like Harvard and Princeton, to teach eugenics. 
And eugenics is just the logical outworking of evolutionary theory. Eugenics specifically is designed to kill off the weaker species. What's that? For a stronger breed stock. Stock, yeah. Uh, the founder of uh, Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. Have you heard that name? <laughs> uh, this is this is not publicized by now, although it should be. You guys know what now is? National Organization of Women. Okay, it's a feminist think tank and group. Margaret Sanger was influenced by Darwin and eugenics, and so she specifically put abortion clinics in African-American communities to kill off African-Americans as the weaker race. Why is that, why is that not being taught in public schools? <laughs> What's that the result of? Evolution, evolutionary theory, okay? So again, it's a, it's a broken moral system and philosophical system. Therefore, it must not be true. Problem six, S uh, similar DNA uh, does not prove common descent, okay? So since the fossil evidence for evolution is so weak, many Darwinists move on to DNA. The argument goes like this. We know that monkeys and humans share 98% of their DNA. Uh, one evolutionist writes this. His name is Paul Davies. He says, there are several good reasons to believe in a universal ancestor. For a start, every known organism shares a common physical and chemical system. The metabolic pathways of the cell, how it grows, which molecules do what and when, and how energy gets stored and liberated, where proteins get made and what they do, are basically the same throughout. So he's arguing that similar DNA in um, humans and monkeys proves that they evolved uh, from the same life forms. But, response is, uh, just because chimps and humans have similar DNA does not prove that they evolved from the same ancestor. A shared DNA could just as easily prove that they had a shared designer. One scholar writes this, uh, intelligent agents frequently reuse the same parts in different designs to meet functional requirements, such as reusing wheels on cars and airplanes, or reusing key computer codes in different versions of Microsoft Windows. Thus, common design, the intentional reuse of a common blueprint or components, is a viable explanation for the widespread functional similarities among the biomolecules found in different types of organisms. So, the assumption that shared DNA uh, means shared ancestor is just that, an assumption. Couldn't it just as easily prove shared designer? I think the answer is yes. Okay, number seven. Um, problem seven. Um, inefficiently designed traits do not prove evolution. So evolutionists often argue that uh, inefficiently designed biological systems or components prove uh, a rule out intelligent design. Now, what's the primary example they love to throw out here? Anyone know? Okay, the appendix, not so much anymore. That's, that, that is still used, though. Although, Koi, is the appendix important? Yes, Koi says yes. I want my appendix. You can't have it. Yeah. So, Dr. Follin is saying it's proven. That serves a very good function. Okay, what's, what's often used? Think of an animal in China. The panda's thumb, okay, the panda's thumb. Uh, it is practically useless, according to, to many. Uh, therefore, it must not have been designed, the argument goes. Uh, it, it is better explained as a clumsy evolutionary adaption. Uh, further proof for the inefficient design uh, argument is uh, our leftover parts um, in whales like leg bones, supposedly, uh, and humans that have tail bones. Now, uh, how should an intelligent design proponent respond to this critique? Any ideas? How should we respond to this critique? Again, the argument goes that if there is inefficiently designed parts, in biology, that proves that there's not intelligence behind um, that design. How would you respond to that? Dan? You could put through the history of different things that 
Yep. Very good. Yeah, Dan said uh, for the recording, there's, there's a history of, of things that we thought were, were poorly designed, unnecessary, but that we now know, like the appendix. Yeah. 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 So the appendix is a great example. Okay. How else can we respond? Pat. Right. Yeah, the vast majority of things do show evidence of very, very efficiently designed, like the eye, for instance, or the brain, or the hand, um, or, or the fact, this, this one boggles my mind, the fact that the human body heals itself. How cool would it be if your car healed itself? Wouldn't that be awesome? You rear-end somebody, you think, that's okay, in six months, they'll be back to normal. I mean, that would be, that would make someone billions. That would be incredible evidence of amazing design. Yet, when you take a knife and cut your finger or your arm or break a bone, your body heals itself. That's amazing. I think it's amazing. Okay, how else would we, res- would we respond to this argument? You guys are missing the most important one. Right. <laughs> That's right, right. Yeah. You would think we would have like all kinds of inefficiently designed parts on us or on animals, three arms or four eyes or whatever. Okay. Steve. Yeah. Right. Within a species. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Very good. Let me ask you a question. Does poorly designed mean not designed? No. What's a great example of this? The Yugo. The Ford Yugo, okay? The Ford Yugo was designed with the gas tank in the back. Why was this so problematic in the 70s? This is the 70s, right? What, what did I say? I meant the Pinto. What's a Yugo? It's a what? Those are poorly designed too. I meant a Pinto. I meant a Pinto. Yeah, so the Pinto was in the 70s, right? Okay, gas tank in the back. If you, if you ran somebody, what happens? There's an explosion, okay? Was the Pinto designed by engineers? Yes. Okay, so poorly designed does not mean not designed, okay? Um, a designer has the right to design things however he or she wants, Right? In addition, God sometimes uses suboptimal things to accomplish his purposes, i.e., evil and suffering. Finally, and I think Pat mentioned this one um, evolutionists cannot provide many examples of things that are poorly designed, but scientists are r- routinely amazed by the vast amounts of optimally designed traits in nature. And it could be from a theological perspective that some of that poorly designed stuff was the result of the fall, right? Isn't that a plausible explanation? So I'm not saying that that God was the one who made mistakes in design, but isn't it possible that as a result of the fall, um, bad things happened to biological systems? Yes, I think that is very possible. A more recent spinoff of the ineffectively designed traits critique uh, is the junk DNA critique. Just a few years ago, many people believed that human DNA contained large amounts of junk DNA, DNA that serves no purpose. Um, But we've now discovered that that is um, (laughs) uh, grossly misunderstood. Uh, Jonathan Wells has a book called The Myth of Junk DNA, where he argues that the idea of junk DNA is not just wrong, it's spectacularly wrong, uh, because we now know that most of that DNA does have a very important purpose, the more we learn about it. 
Um, let me keep going. Problem eight. Problem eight. Um, evolutionists um, are turning on their own theory. The evidence for Darwinism is so scant that even Darwinists are rethinking their age, this age-old theory. Uh, Colin Peterson is a senior paleontologist at the British Natural History Museum and the author of the museum's general text on evolution. And while giving a lecture at the American Museum of Natural History uh, to a very, very prestigious group of evolutionists, uh, he uttered these amazing words. He said this, Can you tell me anything you know about evolution? Any one thing that is true? And again, this guy is, he's like, He's like the Roger Federer of Darwinism, or the Tiger Woods. Of, uh, this guy is a, he's a big deal. Uh, he's a big proponent of evolutionary theory. And he says this. Um, I'll start over again. Can you tell me anything you know about evolution? Any one thing that is true? I tried that question on the geology stage at the Field Museum of Natural History, and the only answer I got was silence. I tried it on the members of the Evolutionary Morphology Seminar at the University of Chicago, a very prestigious body of evolutionists, and all I got there was silence for a long time. And eventually, one person said, I do know one thing that ought not to be taught in high school. So here you have some of the world's leading evolutionists silenced when asked for one thing we know for sure about the truthfulness of this theory. Peterson is not alone in his skepticism. Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who I've mentioned before, uh, probably one of the 20th century's leading proponents of evolution. He taught at Harvard for years. He says this, I well remember how the synthetic theory of evolution beguiled me with its unifying power when I was a graduate student in the mid-1960s. Since then, I have been watching it slowly unravel as a universal description of evolution. The molecular assault came first, followed quickly by renewed attention to unorthodox theories of speciation and by challenges at the level of macroevolution itself. I've been reluctant to admit it, since beguiling is often forever, but if Mayer's characterization of the synthetic theory is accurate, then that theory, as a general proposition, is effectively dead, despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. So here you have Stephen Jay Gould, again. This guy's not a minor player, he's dead now. But he was one of the 20th century's leading proponents of this idea, and he's basically saying, this theory is essentially dead right now. And what's ironic about this is, is you have, and Stephen Meyer often makes this point, um, you have a lot of Christian scientists, not Christian scientists, but Christians who are scientists, who are trying to put forward theistic evolution as kind of a middle way. And Stephen Meyer is like, they're way out of touch with the most, most recent discoveries in science. They're promoting a theory that was popular decades ago, not realizing that the most modern discoveries in science are basically making the theory of evolution seem less and less probable. So why jump on that bandwagon now when it's probably not going to be around in a decade or two, according to Stephen Meyer? So Gould and Peterson admit that the theory of evolution has problems. This is the case. Then why do so many cling to it so tenaciously? And that brings us to the final problem, problem nine. Um, evolution is really a religion that masquerades as science. Despite all the factual evidence against Neo-Darwin's evolution, the common opinion perpetuated today is that evolution is fact and must be accepted as fact. And behind this viewpoint is the assumption that is often referred to as methodological naturalism. That's the idea um, that all that exists in the world are the things that we can sense with our five senses. Uh, and this, this idea also argues uh, that we should never, ever, ever bring any kind of notion of God into the picture of science. One scholar says this, methodological naturalism asserts that to qualify as scientific, a theory must explain all phenomena 
by reference to purely physical or material, that is, non-intelligent causes or processes. But the question is, why? Why, why do we have to leave the supernatural out of science if the evidence from science points towards a designer? Science should go wherever the evidence leads regardless. And if the evidence leads towards intelligence and design, then we should go there. It's very arbitrary to say that theism or a notion of God should not be a part of the equation. Again, the question is, why? And by the way, that methodological naturalism is a brand new thing historically. So for the last 500 years, the vast majority of scientists were Christians, and they had no problem bringing God into the science equation. Um, Harvard geneticist Richard Lewontin writes this, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. Why? Because we have a prior commitment to materialism. Moreover, the materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So here, here you have this guy who is a very, very well-known, prestigious scientist saying, even if the evidence points me towards intelligence, I will not go there, period. And the question is, why? Ultimately, if there is a designer, there is a God, and you and I are accountable to God. And scientists don't like that. Nobel Prize winner Harold Urey writes this, all of us who study the origin of life find the more we look into it, the more we feel it is too complex to have evolved anywhere. We all believe as an article of faith that life evolved from dead matter on this planet. So again, this guy is saying, we know that chemical evolution is impossible. Yet, by faith, we believe that it happened. Again, why is he saying that? Because if there's a designer, there's a God. And there's a God, we're accountable to him. Finally, um, Harvard's George Wald writes this. When it comes to the origin of life on this earth, there are only two possibilities. Creation or spontaneous generation, chemical evolution. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago. But that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of special supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Again, this guy is freely admitting that what we believe as evolutionists has no basis in science, but we believe it on faith because we don't like the alternatives. So who, who, who is taking the blind leap of faith here? The Christian or the evolutionist? The evolutionist. This faith is based on nothing. It's not based on evidence. It's based on hopes and wishes and dreams. So these Darwinists all reject intelligent design because they have a pre-commitment to philosophical naturalism or materialism. As a result, de debates about intelligent design and evolution often go nowhere fast. The Darwinist refuses to interact with evidence for design because he or she has already believed, has already committed to the idea that design is not an option. And furthermore, Darwinists conveniently define the rules of science to support materialism. To make any progress in this debate, both sides must be willing to step back from the debate and discuss their presuppositions and their pre-commitments to their philosophical ideas. This is where the real debate lies. It's in these, these pre-commitments to what is science uh, and what are my presuppositions about the supernatural. In conclusion, after defining evolution, I provided nine reasons why I think Evolution is very, very problematic. It should be rejected. Uh, one author summarizes uh, the findings like this. To believe in evolution, you must believe that nothing created everything. Non-life produced life. Randomness produced fine-tuning. Chaos produced highly complex information. Unconsciousness produced consciousness. And non-reason produced 
reason. <laughs> Again, which perspective requires more faith? The evolutionary perspective, which is why Norman Geisler's title of this book is so fantastic. The title is, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Being an atheist requires far more faith if you're defining faith as a blind leap into the nothingness, which is not how Christianity defines faith. As Christians, we are not fideists. We believe, we believe certain things based on evidence and facts and history. Um, not, not, uh, we're not advocating taking blind leaps into the nothing, nothingness. So with all that said, I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution personally. It seems far more reasonable to believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. All right, with that said, after three weeks on evolution and creation, what are your questions? I have three minutes left. And keep in mind that next week is going to be a panel discussion. Yes, Anne. The synthetic theory of evolution? That, that's just shorthand for, for Darwinism. Yeah, yeah, good question. Yes, Joe. It's more of a comment. Um, we're, we're in a society where debate isn't allowed, that everything is proven science, proven law, proven this and that. And as Christians, we need to stand for the truth, wherever that leads us. Right. The problem with scientists and all these low arts PhDs, I've sat under a lot of them, is that they get their PhD on it. They, uh, the pride of man won't allow them to say they're wrong. Yeah. And these guys that get the Nobel Prize for whatever aren't ever going to back down from that because they're on the circuit. Right. They're, they're going around doing talks at the Field Museum in yeah. Chicago yeah. or wherever, and they'll never get off it because they're, they're money makers. Right. Holy pride. It's their money maker, and it's, it's, a, it's a religion, it's a worldview. Because again, if there is no God, you can do whatever you want. No one can tell you what to do. So uh, there, 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 is, there is philosophical and moral incentive to not believe what I'm saying. What else? Questions, comments? Yes. Uh, yeah, this, this is from, uh, I, I was quoting Lee Strobel and uh, his great book, The Case for a Creator, which is a fantastic book on this subject. Uh, he says this, uh, I, I, I didn't give this to the slide team, sorry, but it says this, to believe in evolution, you must believe that nothing created everything, non-life produced life, randomness produced fine-tuning, chaos produced highly complex information, unconsciousness produced consciousness, and non-reason produced reason. By the way, Alan, these notes are all should, should all be online. Um, yeah, if you go to if you go to um, resources Sunday school on our website, you'll you'll find them there. Anything else before we wrap it up? Left you guys speechless, huh? Joe. Is, is it? Yeah. He, the other guys proved him, but he was too afraid, even though he was the man. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't go there. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting is I found just chew on your brain while you're mowing the lawn on this, but because there is a beginning, they found now that the theory of relativity says there's got to be what happens when there isn't anything, and that's why they discovered black holes. Mm. Yeah. They said that where physics goes away, yeah. collapse of matter. Yeah. And so it's, it's just like, whoa. That, that book by Metaxas is fantastic. It's called Is Atheism Dead? If you haven't read it yet, it's in our bookstore. Uh, it's, it's basically, it's a, it's a more readable version um, of Stephen Meyer's new book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. They're both excellent, but Metaxas' book is a little more accessible than Meyer's. Meyer's book is great, but it gets pretty technical. Yes, Russ. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, he does a great job with that. He goes into archaeology. He, 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 he talks about science, um, archaeology, philosophy. It's a, it's a great book. All right, it's 946. I got to stop. So next week is the last week of Sunday school. We're going to have, I think, four guys on a panel discussion talking about this topic a little bit more. Um, so with that said, let me pray uh, and ask for God's blessing on our service. Father, thank you again for allowing us to gather this morning, and we do pray that as we gather in a few moments that you would uh, be merciful to us, fill us with your spirit, and help us to honor you in our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.